You can follow You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog and on Facebook by searching for You Are Not So Smart in Facebook. Find other You Are Not So Smart stuff like t-shirts, past shows, cookie recipes, articles, videos, books, and so much more at YouAreNotSoSmart.com. Also, if you bought a copy of either of my books, You Are Not So Smart or You Are Now Less Dumb and you would like to have your copy signed, you can write to me and I will send you a signed book plate back in the mail for free. Or if you have a digital copy, I can actually sign that. Yes, in the future, we can sign digital copies. Just go to YouAreNotSoSmart.com, click on books and scroll down for links and click those links to learn more. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 22. In New York City, in an apartment a few streets away from the center of Harlem, above trees reaching out over sidewalks and dogs pulling at leashes and conversations cut short to avoid parking tickets, a group of professional thinkers once gathered and completed equations that would both snuff and spare several hundred thousand human lives. People walking by the apartment at the time had no idea that four stories above them, some of the most important work in applied mathematics was tilting the scales of a global conflict as secret agents of the United States Armed Forces, arithmetical soldiers engaged in statistical combat. Nor could people today know as they open umbrellas and twist heels on cigarettes that nearby, in an apartment overlooking Morningside Heights, One of those soldiers once effortlessly prevented the United States military from doing something incredibly stupid, something that could have changed the flags now flying in capitals around the world had he not caught it, something you do every day. These masters of math moved their families across the country, some across an ocean, so they could work together. As they unpacked, The theaters in their new hometowns replaced posters for Citizen Kane with those for Casablanca, and the newspapers they unwrapped from photo frames and plates featured stories still unraveling the events at Pearl Harbor. Many still held positions at universities. Others left those sorts of jobs to think deeply in one of the many groups that worked for the armed forces, free of any other obligations aside from checking in on their families at night and feeding their brains during the day all paused their careers and rushed to enlist so they could help crush Hitler, not with guns and brawn, but with integers and exponents. The official name for the people inside the apartment was the Statistical Research Group, a cabal of geniuses assembled at the request of the White House 
and made up of people who would go on to compete for and win Nobel Prizes. The SRG was an extension of Columbia University, and they dealt mainly with statistical analysis. The Philadelphia Computing Section, made up entirely of women mathematicians, worked six days a week at the University of Pennsylvania on ballistics tables. Other groups with different specialties were tied to Harvard, Princeton, Brown, and others, 11 in all, each a leaf at the end of a new branch of the government created to help defeat the Axis. The Department of War Math. Actually, no. They were never officially known by such a deliciously sexy title. They were instead called the Applied Mathematics Panel. But they operated as if they were a Department of War Math. So the department, the panel, was created because the United States needed help. A surge of new technology had flooded into daily life, and the same wonders that years earlier drove ticket sales to the World's Fair, were now cracking open cities. Numbers and variables now massed into scenarios far too complex to solve with maps and binoculars. The military realized it faced problems that no soldier had ever confronted. No best practices yet existed for things like rockets and radar stations and aircraft carriers. The most advanced computational devices available were clunky experiments made of telephone switches or vacuum tubes. A calculator still looked like the mutant child of an old-fashioned cash register and a mechanical typewriter. If you wanted solutions to the newly unfathomable problems of modern combat, you needed powerful number crunchers. And in 1941, the world's most powerful number crunchers ran on toast and coffee. Here's how it worked. Somewhere inside the vast machinery of war, a commander would stumble into a problem. That commander would then send a request to the head of the panel, who would then assign the task to the group he thought would best be able to resolve the issue. Scientists in that group would then travel to Washington and meet with the top military personnel and advisors and explain to them how they might go about solving the problem. It was like calling technical support, except you called a computational genius who then invented a new way of understanding the world through math and an effort to win a global conflict for control of the planet. For instance, the Navy desperately needed to know what was the best possible pattern or spread of torpedoes to launch against large enemy ships. All they had to go on were a series of hastily taken blurry black and white photographs of turning Japanese war vessels. The panel handed over the photos to one of its meat-based mainframes and asked it to report back when it had a solution. The warrior mathematicians solved the problem almost as soon as they saw it. Lord Kelvin, they told the Navy, had already worked out the calculations in 1887. Just look at the patterns in the waves, they explained. See how they fan out in curves like an unfurling fern? The spaces tell you everything. They give it all away. Work out the distance between the cusps of the bow waves, and you'll know how fast the ship is going. Lord Kelvin hadn't worked out what to do if the ship was turning, but no problem, they said. The mathematicians scribbled on notepads and clapped on blackboards until they had both advanced the field and created a solution. They then measured wavelets on real ships and saw their math was sound. The Navy added a new weapon to its arsenal. The ability to accurately send a barrage of torpedoes into a turning ship based only on what you could divine from the patterns in the waves. 
The devotion of the mathematical soldiers grew stronger as the war grew bloodier, and they learned the things they etched on hidden blackboards and jotted on guarded scraps of paper determined who would and would not return home to their families once the war was over. Leading brains in every scientific discipline had eagerly joined the fight, and although textbooks would eventually devote chapters to the work of the codebreakers and the creators of the atomic bomb, there were many groups whose stories never made headlines, those who produced nothing more than weaponized equations. One story in particular was nearly lost forever. In it, a brilliant statistician named Abraham Wald saved countless lives by preventing a group of military commanders from committing a common human error, a mistake that you probably make every single day. Colleagues describe Wald as gentle and kind, as a genius unsurpassed in his areas of expertise. His contributions, said one peer, had, quote, produced a decisive turn in method and purpose, end quote, in the social sciences. Born in Hungary in 1902, the son of a Jewish baker, Wald spent his childhood studying equations, eventually working his way up through academia to become a graduate student at the University of Vienna, mentored by the great mathematician Karl Minger. Wald was the sort of a student who offered suggestions on how to improve the books he was reading and then saw to it that those suggestions were incorporated into later editions. His mentor would introduce Wald to problems that made experts in the field rub their beards, the sort of things with names like stochastic difference equations and the betweenness among the ternary relations in metric space. Wald would not only return within a month or so with a solution to such a problem, but politely ask for another to solve. As he advanced the science of probability and statistics, his name became familiar to mathematicians in the United States, where he eventually fled in 1938, reluctantly, as the Nazi threat grew. His family, all but a single brother, would later die in the extermination camp known as Auschwitz. Soon after Wald arrived in the United States, he joined the Applied Mathematics panel and went to work with the team at Columbia stuffed in the secret apartment. His group looked for patterns and applied statistics to problems and situations too large and unwieldy for commanders to get their arms around. They turned the geometry of air combat into graphs and charts, and they plotted the success rates of bomb sites and various tactics. As the war progressed, their efforts became focused on the most pressing problem of the war, keeping airplanes in the sky. In some years of World War II, the chances of a member of a bomber crew making it through a tour of duty was about the same as calling heads in a coin toss and winning. As a member of a World War II bomber crew, You flew for hours above an entire nation hoping to murder you while suspended in the air, huge, visible from far away, and vulnerable from every direction above and below as bullets and flak streamed out to puncture you. Ghosts already, that's how historian Kevin Wilson described World War II airmen. They expected to die. 
because it always felt like the chances of surviving the next bombing run were about the same as running shirtless across a football field, swarming with angry hornets and making it unharmed to the other side. You might make it across once, but what if you kept running back and forth? Eventually your luck would run out. Any advantage the mathematicians could provide, even a very small one, would make a big difference day after day, mission after mission. As with the torpedo problem, the top brass explained what they knew, and the panel presented the problem to Wald and his group. How, the Army Air Force asked, could they improve the odds of a bomber making it home? Military engineers explained to the statistician that they already knew the Allied bombers needed more armor, but the ground crews couldn't just cover the planes like tanks, not if they wanted them to take off. The operational commanders asked for help figuring out the best places to add what little protection they could. It was here that Wald prevented the military from falling prey to survivorship bias, an error in perception that could have turned the tide of a war if left unnoticed and uncorrected. See if you can spot it. So, the military looked at the bombers that had returned from enemy territory, and they recorded where those planes had taken the most damage. Over and over again, they saw that the bullet holes tended to accumulate along the wings, around the tail gunner, and down the center of the body. Wings, body, tail gunner. Considering this information, where would you put the extra armor? Naturally, the commanders wanted to put the thicker protection where they could clearly see the most damage, where the holes clustered. But Wald said, no, that would be precisely the wrong decision. Putting the armor there wouldn't improve their chances at all. Do you understand why it was a foolish idea to do it that way? The mistake, which Wald saw instantly, was that the holes showed where the planes were strongest. The holes showed where a bomber could be shot and still survive the flight home. After all, here they were, holes and all. It was the planes that weren't there that needed extra protection, and they had needed it in places that these planes had not. The holes in the surviving planes actually reveal the locations that needed the least additional armor. Look at where the survivors are unharmed, he said, and that's where these bombers are most vulnerable. That's where the planes that didn't make it back were hit. Taking survivorship bias into account, Wald went ahead and worked out how much damage each individual part of an airplane could take before it was destroyed. Engine, ailerons, pilot, stabilizers. And then, through a tangle of complicated equations, he showed the commanders how likely it was that the average plane would get shot in those places in any given bombing run, depending on the amount of resistance it faced. Those calculations are still in use today. The military had the best data available at the time, and the stakes could not have been higher, yet the top commanders still failed to see the flaws in their logic. 
Those planes would have been armored in vain had it not been for the intervention of a man trained to spot human error. A question should be forming in the front of your brain at this point. If the top brass of the United States Armed Forces could make such a simple and dumb mistake while focused on avoiding simple and dumb mistakes, thanks to survivorship bias, does that mean survivorship bias is likely bungling many of your own day-to-day perceptions? Well, the answer is, of course, yes, all the time. Simply put, survivorship bias is your tendency to focus on survivors instead of whatever you would call a non-survivor, depending on the situation. Sometimes that means you tend to focus on the living instead of the dead, or on winners instead of losers, or on successes instead of failures. In Wald's problem, the military focused on the planes that made it home and almost made a terrible decision because they ignored the ones that got shot down. It's easy to do. After any process that leaves behind survivors, the non-survivors are often destroyed or muted or removed from your view. And if failures become invisible, then naturally you will pay more attention to successes. Not only do you fail to recognize that what is missing might have held important information, you fail to recognize that there is missing information at all. You must remind yourself that when you start to pick apart winners and losers, successes and failures, the living and the dead, that by paying attention to one side of that equation, you're always neglecting the other. If you're thinking about opening a restaurant because there's so many successful restaurants in your hometown, you are ignoring the fact that only successful restaurants survive to become examples. Maybe on average, 90% of restaurants in your city fail in the first year. You can't see all those failures because when they fail, they also disappear from view. As Nassim Tlaib writes in his book, The Black Swan, the cemetery of failed restaurants is very silent. Of course, the few that don't fail in that deadly of an environment are wildly successful because only the very best and the very lucky can survive. So all you're left with are super successes. And looking at super successes day after day, it can make you think that it's a great business to get into, when what you're actually seeing is evidence that you should avoid it. Survivorship bias pulls you toward best-selling diet gurus, celebrity CEOs, and superstar athletes. It's an unavoidable tick, the desire to deconstruct success like a thieving magpie and pull away the shimmering bits. You look to the successful for clues about the hidden, about how to better live your life, about how you too can survive similar forces against which you too struggle. Colleges and conferences prefer speakers who shine as examples of making it through adversity, of struggling against the odds and winning. The problem here is that you rarely take away from these inspirational figures advice on what not to do, on what you should avoid, and that's because they don't know. Information like that is lost along with the people who don't make it out of bad situations or who don't make it on the cover of business magazines, people who don't get invited to speak at graduations and commencements and inaugurations. The actors who travel from Louisiana to Los Angeles only to return to Louisiana after a few years don't get to sit next to James Lipton and watch clips of their Oscar-winning performances as students eagerly gobble up their crumbs of wisdom. In short, the advice business 
is a monopoly run by survivors. As the psychologist Daniel Kahneman writes in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, a stupid decision that works out well becomes a brilliant decision in hindsight. So the things a great company like Microsoft or Google or Apple, whatever they did right, that's like the planes with the bullet holes in the wings. The companies that burned all the way to the ground after taking massive damage, they fade from memory. So before you emulate the history of a famous company, Kahneman, his advice is that you should imagine going back in in time when that company was just getting by and ask yourself if the outcome of its decisions were in any way predictable. If not, you're probably just seeing patterns in hindsight where there was only chaos in the moment. He sums it up like this, quote, if you group successes together and look for what makes them similar, the only real answer will be luck, end quote. So if you see your struggle this way as partly a game of chance, then as Google engineer Barnaby James writes in his blog, quote, skill will allow you to place more bets on the table, but it's not a guarantee of success, end quote. So thus he warns, quote, beware advice from the successful. Entrepreneur Jason Cohen, in in writing about survivorship bias, he pointed out that since we can't go back in time and start 20 identical Starbucks across the planet, we can never know if that business model is actually the source of the chain's immense popularity or if something completely random and out of the control of the decision makers led to a Starbucks on just about every street corner in North America. So that means you should be skeptical of any book promising you the secrets to winning at the game of life through some particular example. See, if you spend your life only learning from survivors, buying books about successful people and pouring over the history of companies that shook the planet, your knowledge of the world will be strongly biased and enormously incomplete. It's um, one of my, the best examples of this I love. It comes from Mike Johnston at the online photographer. And he wrote over at that blog, uh, quote, I have to chuckle whenever I read yet another description of American frontier log cabins as being well-crafted or sturdily or beautifully built. The much more likely truth is that 99% of frontier log cabins were horribly built. It's just that all those fell down. The few that have survived intact were the ones that were well-made, but that does not mean all of them were. So you take all this together and the best I can tell is here's the trick. When you're looking for advice You should look for what not to do, for what is missing. But do not expect to find that among the quotes and biographical records of people whose signals rose above the noise. They may have no clue how or if they lucked up. What you can't see, and what they can't see, is that the successful tend to make it more probable that unlikely events will happen to them while trying to steer themselves into the positive side of randomness. They stick with it, remaining open to better opportunities that may require abandoning their current paths. And that's something you can start doing right now without reading a single self-help proverb, maxim, or aphorism. Also, keep in mind that those who fail rarely get paid for advice on how not to fail, which is too bad because despite how it may seem, success boils down to serially avoiding catastrophic failure while routinely absorbing manageable damage.
Before we finish this story about survivorship bias, I would like to mention Wald one more time. Like many of the others who joined the armed services to fight Hitler with numbers, Abraham Wald went down in history, but not for the bombers and bullet holes story. He is best remembered as the inventor of sequential analysis, another achievement he earned while working in the Department of War Math. He married Lucille Land in 1941. Two years later, they had their first child, Betty, followed four years later by another they named Robert. And three years after that, at the top of his career and enjoying an exotic speaking tour, after saving the lives of thousands of people he would never meet, he and Lucille died in an airplane that crashed against the side of the Nilgiri Mountains in India. Perhaps there's an irony to that? Something about airplanes and odds and chance and luck. But it isn't the interesting part of Wald's story. His contributions to science are what survives his time on Earth, and also they are the parts of his tale that will endure. In 1968, the National Academy of Sciences issued a report saying the application of mathematics in World War II, quote, became recognized as an art. And the lessons learned by the mathematicians were later applied to business, science, industry, and management. And they saved the world, and then they rebuilt it using the same tools each time, calculators and chalk. In 1978, Alan Wallace, director of the SRG, said of his team, this was surely the most extraordinary group of statisticians ever organized. The bomber problem was just a side story for them, a funny anecdote that only surfaced in the 1980s as they all began to reminisce full time. When you think about how fascinating that story is, it makes you wonder about all the stories we'll never hear about all those numerical soldiers because they never made it out of the war and into a journal or magazine or a book. And that's true of so much that's important in life. All we know of the past passes through a million, million filters, and a great deal is never recorded or is tossed aside to make room for something more interesting or beautiful or audacious. All we will learn from history reaches us from the stories that, for whatever reason, survived. So, uh, you may have noticed I'm a little bit raspy. That's because I have a cold, and that's also why this episode, if you're listening to it right as it comes out, it came out a little later than it was supposed to, so I apologize for that. So what you just listened to was an adaptation of a much longer piece that I wrote about a year ago for youarenotsosmart.com um, called Survivorship Bias, and it was really fun to research it, and I had my friend Brad Clark uh, provide illustrations for the article that I think you will like. They are all reimagined war posters for the imaginary Department of War Math. And uh, it was just really interesting to delve into not only the psychology behind survivorship bias, but the full article talks all about the psychology of luck, which is some really interesting stuff. And hopefully I'll be able to get Richard Wiseman on a future episode to discuss the psychology of luck, which he has researched. He does appear in a future episode um, coming up about sleep. But this episode as you may have figured out, is about 
survivorship bias. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we discuss a different topic in the realm of self-delusion, and then we interview an expert on that topic. And in this episode, we're going to interview Megan Price. I met Megan at a conference called Stratacon, um, put on by uh, O'Reilly Media, and they were kind enough to invite me out. I did a, a lecture in front of this big group of people about uh, survivorship bias and the psychology of luck. And Megan was paired with me as the speaker who was right before me. And she did a speech about what she does, which is, um, well, she's basically a modern day Abraham Wald. I mean, she is the modern day Abraham Wald. She's a statistician who uses math to paint a better picture of the world so that really bad places and situations can can become less bad. And the situations can be changed to ease prevent and end the incredible suffering that she studies among people who need help the most. And you'll hear all about that in a second. Megan is uh, also a research fellow at the Carnegie Mellon University Center for Human Rights Science. And um, you'll hear more about what she does and why she does it in the interview. So let's just go ahead and pick her brain. Megan Price, you are a scientist who is using science to change the world, to do, to spread good in the world. Um, and you're a statistician, correct? That is correct. So what do you do? That's such a great question. I, when I'm doing the parts of my job that I like, I am writing code and using statistical methods and computer science to quantify conflict violence. Wow. So um, what is conflict violence and and what is it that um, you're part of the human rights data analysis group? So what is your function in that group and, and what exactly is going on over there? Sure. My official title at HR DAG is director of research. And we try to answer questions like how many people have been killed in Syria or what we find a slightly more interesting and productive kind of question would be something more along the lines of at what rate were members of the indigenous population in Guatemala killed as compared to members of the non-indigenous population? And we prefer questions like that because they get at a more actionable accountability measure. Uh, They get at a question of, was the violence targeted? Did the violence look like patterns associated with acts of genocide? Um, Those kinds of questions. So that's really what we get into when we talk about quantifying conflict violence. Um, Basically, any of the places where you can think of bad things happening, we have probably worked. And sometimes that's in the context of collaborating with Truth Commission. Sometimes that means partnering with United Nations mission. Um, And sometimes that means working with a local grassroots organization that's doing this kind of work uh, in their own community. So what um, who, what sort of agencies use your information? Who, who benefits from what you're doing? Sure. Well, hopefully the local communities and victims and victims' families benefit. That's, that's our ultimate goal. But more immediately, we typically partner with 
advocacy organizations that are trying to do what we refer to as historical clarification. Their advocacy goal may be as simple sounding as telling a historical story that is backed up by empirical evidence and that can be documented and preserved as a way of storytelling within their community. Or it could be as complex as being asked to testify in a court case and provide evidence when perpetrators are brought to trial, or I suppose alleged perpetrators are brought to trial. So uh, what is sort of the pedigree of this uh, of this group? I would assume that it, it, um, it started in a sort of a different, uh, had a has has origins and it has grown over time. And could you sort of take us through how that happened? Sure, that's very true. Um, it all started with my colleague, Dr. Patrick Ball, and he began working in El Salvador in the 90s during that conflict. And the skill set that he brought to the table was being a computer coder and being smart about organizing data in databases. And it turned out that that somewhat surprisingly had a useful function in the context of human rights research and that human rights advocates understood that they were collecting really valuable data and that they didn't necessarily have the tools to organize and preserve that data in a way that might be useful further down the road. And so that was really where he got his start. And he ultimately took that work to his job at the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And that was where eventually the name HRDAG first was used in a grant application. And He was at AAAS for several years, and there they worked on projects in Guatemala and El Salvador and Kosovo. And then ultimately, his team uh, needed to grow and expand in ways that were not really going to be supported by the AAAS infrastructure. I mean, obviously, they supported the, the work and the research, but it wasn't really quite the right fit. And so Patrick and his team moved to another technical nonprofit organization here in the Bay Area called Benetech. And we were a project at Benetech for almost 10 years um, because they provided such a, a nice and a comfortable home for us. And the original plan when, when HR DAG moved there was that it would be kind of a place to get our footing before before striking out on our own uh, in, you know, maybe three to five years. And we stayed almost 10. And and then in the past year, we, we have rolled out into our own independent nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. And you're doing a lot of work in in Syria right now, correct? That is correct, yeah. So what sort of data are you collecting and, and, and how is it being used? Sure. So the data in Syria is particularly interesting because it's an ongoing conflict. Very often we've worked in historical conflicts. And so it's one of the first times we're working in the midst of an ongoing conflict and the community involved is very technically adept and astute and very invested in doing their own documentation. So the source of data for us are local Syrians in the country and um, 
Syrians who have left the country but are uh, had, are organizing their own documentation efforts and are communicating with a network in the country to do their own documenting and recording of human rights violations. So the the thing that really fascinates me about the work that you're doing is that it, it has a pedigree of um, scientists and mathematicians and statisticians who um, who work in areas that you, you you wouldn't really expect them to be working in. You wouldn't you expect these people from a layman's perspective. You think that these are just people who teach classes and they uh, they walk into a, a a nice white room and they just sit there at a desk and think and uh, <laughs> and that uh and this is like um, I think that people might be surprised at how. Um, statisticians are, are being employed all around the, the world doing different things. Um, are there some sort of, are there similar groups that you know of that are doing similar things? What are some things that statisticians are doing right now around the world that may be um, surprising to, to a layperson? Sure. I think that's actually been one of the, the greatest things about this kind of revolution in in data analysis and data science is that more and more we're finding statisticians in, as you say, unexpected places. Um, there are folks doing some sort of data analysis throughout uh, 14 different um, federal statistical agencies in the United States. And they work on a on a wide variety of problems and there are a number of statisticians working with the United Nations working with the World Health Organization um, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International are both starting to develop their own in-house technical analytical capabilities to do this kind of work um, and one of the most exciting things I've seen lately is this real movement for computer scientists and statisticians to do X for good. So it might be hacking for good or data science for good. Um, and a nice example of that are the folks uh, at a group called Data Kind in Chicago. And they specifically identify non-governmental organizations that have data that have potentially have analytical problems but don't have the in-house capability to tackle them and that could be anything from the New York City branch of the ACLU looking at data on stop and frisk and trying to get a handle on whether or not that policy is being implemented in a way that seems to protect civil liberties um, to an NGO working in rural Africa trying to get midwives to pregnant ladies in a more efficient way. Um, and they kind of play matchmaker between these organizations and folks with the skill set to analyze that data, which I think is pretty cool. Um, yeah, that is, <laughs> that is pretty cool. Uh, and, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say as another example, uh, there's a uh, I guess it's a section or a committee within the American Statistical Association called Statisticians Without Borders. Um, and similarly, that's a group of volunteers that take on projects that would not otherwise be funded or supported. They've conducted surveys in Haiti following the earthquake there. Um, they've done some really amazing work. And then the last example is back at 
AAAS at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, they have a whole program called On-Call Scientists. And that's everything from statisticians to anthropologists or biologists or whatever kind of scientist you might need. And any organization can write into this program and say, I have X problem and I think it requires Y expertise. Do you have anybody who could help me out? Well, that's amazing. I had, <laughs> I had no idea such a thing existed because, you know, I've written about um, Abraham Wald and that whole thing with the um, uh, what I like to call the Department of War Math. Yeah. yeah but uh, I, what I've discovered uh, in speaking with you and just what and just hearing what you said just now as well is that it's, it didn't just end there. It's sort of um, there. There are many, many multi there are many uh, leaves on many branches of um in the world of, of math, uh, data science, sta- uh, statistics, changing, not just, uh, helping other, uh, fields do their work, but also, um, specifically just themselves ch- helping change the world for the better. And that's, that's, uh, really amazing. I think that's something that most people w- would have no I- idea is happening. Um, but what I want to ask, what I want to ask you is that this is, you're uniquely, um, suited to deal with something that, uh, lay people don't even know they're dealing with. And that is, um, trying to figure out what it is you don't know. Um, and so how do you go about in your profession, um, figuring out what's missing, thinking about what's missing, estimating what's missing? Uh, how does that all factor into your work? Sure. Well, The cool thing about, well, one of the many cool things about statistics, which is not a sentence a lot of people string together, um, is that it, it's always asking questions about what's missing. It's always trying to estimate, to make the leap from what was I able to observe, what data was I able to collect to this hypothetical population that I'm actually interested in. And so my formal training has always prepared me to think that way, to recognize that what I have my hands on is but a subset of what I'm actually interested in. And then what my specific work with HR DAG has trained me to do is in most conventional statistical applications, you have this luxury of... Um, randomly selected data. I, I was about to describe it as as well-designed, but most data collection projects are well-designed. Um, but if you think about a more conventional survey, the kinds of results that are talked about during an election year, um, you, know, you have a list of phone numbers and you randomly select a number of those and then you call those people and then you know that that random sample represents, at least in theory, the voting public. Um, And so that relationship between what you're able to observe and what you're actually interested in is a lot clearer and is something that those researchers have a lot more control over. Whereas in the work that we do, we try to cast as wide a net as possible in what we consider to be data. And we consider most sources of data to be valuable and and useful. But those sources very often are 
not originally collected for the purposes of conducting human rights research, or even when they are, they are simply what was available. They are the individuals who were aware that a truth commission was being held and who had the motivation and the ability to go to that commission and tell their story. Or they are the individuals who successfully fled across a border and made it to a refugee camp where they were then interviewed by an NGO. Um, And these are all really important sources of information, but they are a very far cry from some sort of randomly designed data collection process. Um, And so that's really the biggest challenge in my day-to-day work is in looking at all of those different data production mechanisms, all the different ways that data might be created, and thinking about who is being included in that data and who is being missed, who might not know that a truth commission was happening, who might not feel safe telling their story to the local NGO, who might not have internet access to post their story to YouTube or to Facebook. Um, so to, to think about the ways in which that data was generated and who's missing from it. And, and, and some people being completely removed from being killed or, or, um, uh, are in some other way incapacitated so they're voiceless. I'm assuming that, that you, all that's factored in as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, that brings us to, I mean, I don't know if you want to, um, formally ask, but that, that brings us to this challenge of event size bias. Yeah. Tell me, I, I, you mentioned it before and you kind of, um, uh, in a, in the lecture that you gave and uh, you shot right through to another <laughs> point and I was like, whoa, whoa, what is it? That's it. That's, I, I, I read about biases all the time and I'd never heard of that. What is event size bias? Sure. It's the, it's the likelihood of larger events to get reported more often than smaller events. And larger and smaller are pretty subjective terms, but especially if you're thinking about things like media sources, the media are a lot more likely to cover and report on an explosion that kills a number of people in a major city, perhaps in a marketplace, than they are to even be aware of an individual who is assassinated in the woods in a rural village. And so when this is the kind of data that you're collecting and analyzing, it's very important to think in those terms about well, this data source has a number of events with five or 10 or 20 or 100 victims, but it doesn't have any reports with just a single victim or it has very few reports with just a single victim. And to appropriately adjust if you have multiple data sources for that bias. And so the what is a, what, what would you say... If you could compare that to something that the typical person might face uh, out here in the non-horrifying, you know, uh, <laughs> what is well, what's an example of event size bias in a normal day-to-day person's life? Sure. Um, well, in politics, 
you really only hear about a politician once they reach a threshold of popularity, once they are considered sufficiently interesting or noteworthy or it's politics, sometimes crazy or entertaining, to warrant coverage outside of their little local community. And so unless you live in that community, you are only getting exposed to the the politicians generated from that area who achieve a certain amount of notoriety. And that may not, in fact, represent what that town or community looks like. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're, it, it causes, uh, tell me if I'm hearing this correctly, it, it causes you to sort of create a model of your environment that is nothing like the actual environment is because you're basing it completely off of just the big events. So the big, the, um, the most notable, uh, examples that come quickly to mind. Precisely. Okay. That's, that sounds about like people. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so tell me, I mean, this is, I would assume bias, uh, fallacies, all these, uh, these things that, um, that these common uh, pitfalls of the mind are, are a big part of what you do. Is there, are there techniques that are known to statisticians or are specifically in, in what you study that um, you use to bypass biases like event size and survivorship and other things like that? Sometimes. And it, it really depends upon what data are available to us. With a single non-randomly selected data source, we can speculate about possible sources of bias, and that's certainly useful to do. And we can talk to field experts who can provide us with context for that speculation, but that's that's all we can do is speculate. If we have two data sources, then we can compare them and we can start to get a better sense of the possible presence of bias based on the ways those two data sources are alike and different. If we have one non-random data set and we have one random data set, perhaps a survey or a census or something like that, a a census would be complete rather than, than random. But then we could do that same kind of comparison and start to identify biases. And then the method that that my team uses relies on three or more data sources and specifically data sources that describe an individual so that we can identify when that individual is referenced in one or two or three of those data sources. And what that allows us to do is to look at what we call the overlaps in those sources. So not only to look at the broad similarities or differences in those data sets, but to look really precisely at this data source is listing these same five victims as this other source. And that makes it possible to model the actual data generation process. And then we can really start to adjust for those biases. Now, nothing's perfect. There are certainly 
some biases that we're, we're going to continue to miss if all of our data sources share them, um, but we can at least start to make progress. So does thinking in this way affect your, your thinking outside of the job? I mean, um, does being a statistician who really thinks about data, data, um, thinks about bias, thinks about how things are more complicated than they seem, does this help you in your day-to-day life? I hope so. I think so. Um, I definitely think that statistical training, whether, you know, whether someone actually goes on to become a statistician or not, the, the key element of that should make, should be to make us all skeptical consumers of data. Um, but I have certainly also read studies that show even incredibly numerate people are very susceptible to their own emotional biases when, when believing or rejecting studies about things they have an emotional opinion about, like gun control or drug use or what have you. So I, I definitely try and have that in the back of my mind, but, uh, but I think I am probably just as susceptible to that as the next person. <laughs> yeah, I'm very interested in this, uh, in the backfire effect. And it's, it's, um, there's, the research is sort of new. It's, it's within the last five, seven years. And it's, uh, let's say, uh, if you receive information that contradicts what you believe, you will believe in that thing more so than before you receive mm. the contradictory information. Yeah. So it makes you kind of dig in your heels. You and- dig in your heels. So if you think that, say, Barack Obama uh, was born in, you think Barack Obama is secretly a Kenyan, uh, you know, communist, and somebody gives you a piece of information that says, that shows real evidence that he's not, you will actually believe more than before you receive the contradictory evidence. So that's one of my favorite things right now is uh, looking into the backfire effect. Um, oh, man. Because it, the- cha- it changes the way you want to um, deliver like PSAs uh, and, and the way you want to engage in uh, information campaigns where you want to change people's minds. Because if you're not careful, what you'll actually be doing is causing more harm than, uh, bef- than not doing anything at all. Yeah. Oh, that's so frustrating. (laughs) It's so weird. So also another part of what you do is dealing with the fact that I think when you when you look at all these numbers and these charts and these graphs and these figures that uh, our natural tendency is to try to turn that into some sort of narrative and to um, try to figure out what is the story behind all of this. And you had mentioned in your lecture that that you often have to deal with conflicting narratives. And um, I'm sure you also have to deal with the fact that you're making narratives out of nothingness and they may not even correspond to reality at all. So how, does, how do you deal with the whole idea of, uh, of generating narrative from, from information? Sure. Um, that's, that's one of the trickiest parts because, and I always, I always think of the, the grandfather of this particular statistical method, uh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon named Steve Feinberg, looking up during a conference and saying, it's all inference. Um, and, and what he meant was, it's all patterns. I mean, our, our brains are hardwired. We want to overlay some kind of interpretation and narrative on on what we, what we think we see. And so we work very hard to basically not facilitate that. Um, You know, we try very hard when we think that the data are not yet sufficient to support uh, a reliable narrative. We 
we try to be very limited in the kind of data visualizations that we provide and in in the kind of results that we provide. But in terms of when we find conflicting narratives, that's that's actually when our team gets the most excited because we have found that that's when you have the opportunity to learn the most about what you're trying to collect data about. So in our case, about conflict violence, because if group A documented an increase in violence in January and group B documented a decrease, then that's exactly the month that I want to go look at more closely. And I want to go talk to those groups and ask them, do you have any insights? Do you know that the security situation deteriorated and so it was much harder for your network to go out in the field and do documenting? Or do you know that the community that suffered the most violence is really insular and doesn't trust outsiders and so didn't feel comfortable telling their stories to you? Or maybe it was something kind of innocuous and boring, like one of the group's hired a new network member who was out doing extra documenting and one of the other groups, somebody was sick. And so they were down a person. Um, but, but those are the kinds of, that's exactly the kind of conflict that I want to, I want to go dig into more deeply and, and where we, we have the best opportunity to learn more. And those scenarios that you bring up that you're, um, that you're hypothesizing, are those, are those, do those come from experience or do they actually just come out of thin air? Do you, do you sit around and sort of brainstorm possibilities or is it it also, is it a mix? How does it work? A little of both. Um, One of the, one of the graphs that I included in the talk that you mentioned, that's looking specifically at documented deaths in Syria. And it shows one of these conflicts. It shows that two of the groups show one pattern and two of the groups show an exactly opposite pattern. And I showed that exact same graph to those groups in Geneva last week. And they all sort of smiled and nodded because they they knew that context. They knew the answer to those questions. And in in some cases, it was some of those exact examples. And, and in some cases, we are just hypothesizing about what might have been the cause. Wow. Well, uh, you certainly... <laughs> You certainly make a lot of people, myself included, feel very uh, useless in this world <laughs> because you're at, you're doing something that really, really, really matters, and is it is is definitely um, making a, an important change, and you're helping people, and it's it's amazing, and you're doing it through critical thinking and logic and science and math, and I think it's just wonderful. Um, oh well, thank you. Um, so, if someone wants to keep up with what you're doing, mm-hmm. uh, how can they do that? They can follow us on Twitter at HRDAG. Similarly, they can follow us on Facebook at Human Rights Data Analysis Group, or they can check out our website, which is hrdag.org. It is pretty nice right now. We are in the process of a big redesign, though, so soon it will be super-duper extra nice. That's great. And... um (laughs) And what what sort of future projects are, are you are you are working on? Uh, we're going to continue to try and get a better sense of what's happening in Syria, and we are also working on an analysis of documents from the National Police Archive in Guatemala, and we are also looking at homicides in Colombia. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is proud to be a member of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. And in that family, you will find all sorts of wonderful and interesting shows. In fact, Boing Boing just added a new show that I think everyone who likes You Are Not So Smart will enjoy. It's called Futility Closet, and it's hosted by Greg and Sharon Ross. Futility Closet is a celebration of uh, quirky and curious things, thought-provoking nuggets of reality, and it's sort of a curiosity cabinet of peculiar information. The most recent episode is about people who have mailed themselves to other places, including Henry Brown, who escaped slavery in 1849 by mailing himself to Pennsylvania, and a five-year-old Idaho girl who mailed herself to her grandparents in 1914. I think you'll like it. So head over to boingboing.net to discover more great podcasts. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for... On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. You can send your recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com, as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. That's right. There's a Pinterest page for You Are Not So Smart if you're into Pinterest-related things, and it's got all the cookie recipes from all the past episodes there. Uh, this week's recipe comes from Ken Rose, and they are, in his words, Amaretti Cookies, a classic Italian biscotto with only four ingredients, one of the tastiest cookies of all time. Now look, my wife makes these cookies for every recipe. Her name is Amanda, and Amanda McCraney loves making the cookie recipes that we get sent him, and she's sort of become an expert, probably an expert, when it comes to making cookies from strange recipes. And these cookies, she said, were just so weird because they really only have four ingredients egg white sugar almonds and you can either use amaretto or you can use almond extract we used almond extract and they make this little pile of cookie uh it's solid through and through it looks kind of like a um it looks like maybe a very finely chopped up haystack uh if you're into haystack cookies around the holidays um but they smell so incredible like we made these yesterday and today they still smell great. Like I have this sitting here in front of me and the entire room now smells of um, roasted almond fantasticness. And I'm going to taste this for you right now. And of course, I'm going to move away from the microphone because if I don't do that, uh, you may become sick and ill just from the sound of my uh, mastication. So I'm going to uh, have a little bit of tea here to wash it down. This is so good. I know it's great. Oh, my God. It's so good. So here we go. I'm Jump over the hill. Boom. Italiano. Ciao, so good. Was that? Okay, that's too far. But look. These are the kind of cookies that if you are ahead of state, you make sure that these are what, how you greet 
You're visiting dignitaries. Like, here, have one of these. They're fantastic. They're a classic Italian biscotto with only four ingredients. One of the tastiest cookies ever made. Mm, courtesy of Ken Rose, one of my subjects who is a master in cookie recipe design. Oh, these are so good that, like, if you have a nut allergy, um, then you, um, it would be worth it to just, like, have one of these in an EpiPen uh, sitting in front of you and just go to town. It's that good. In fact... If I was told that I would get a nut allergy if I ate three of these cookies, I would eat five. Mm -hmm. I feel fancy. This cookie is so good that it, it makes me feel like I should be named uh, Robespierre or something like that. Or um, I should have the, a stack of these next to me as I write my memoir. Mm. Oh boy. That is a cookie that you must make. Look, every once in a while, one of these cookie recipes, I'll say, whatever you do, the next time you're around baking supplies and, and um, kitchen implements, make this cookie. This is that cookie. Make this cookie. You, 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 you spread almonds on a cookie sheet and you let them roast for 10 minutes and then you bring them out. You just chop them up and you grind them into like a meal and then you um, put the other ingredients together and you cook it. And it's, oh my God. Yes. This is, this is like something, this is like a $25 per cookie cookie if you were bad at handling money. Oh, so good. Okay, let's talk about some self-delusion news. So the study we're going to talk about in this episode is, oh, I love this study so much because every once in a while I come across a study that is like right in the center of what you are not so smart is all about. And this is definitely one of those studies. It comes from um, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. A couple of people have written about this. Um, I first heard about it through uh, a app called Circa, but then I, uh, I read more in depth about it from Ed Yong, who I uh, very much recommend if you love science to check out Ed Yong's work over at Not Exactly Rocket Science for Discover Magazine. But um, I'm going to talk about this uh, directly from the study itself, which is uh, player preferences among new and old violins. And uh, the authors, Claudia Fritz, Joseph Curtin, uh, Jacques Pointevineau, Palme, Morel, Samuels, and uh, Fan Chao Tao. So these, uh, and if I got any of those names wrong, just I apologize. But the study is incredibly awesome. The idea is, um, well, let me just kind of walk you through it. There's a common belief among violinists and music lovers and um, people who are aficionados of um, classical music and violin and, and all sorts of the, uh, people who are in that world. They believe that the Stradivarius and the Guanari uh, violins made a long time ago, late 1600s, 1700s, um, are the best violins ever made. That it's so well established that the debate is not over whether or not they are the best, but why they are the best. And people come up with all sorts of explanations as to why they're the best. The quality of the wood, the environmental factors that were present during the time period in which they were made, the chemical properties in the varnish that can't be replicated in modern processes, uh, all sorts of things that try to explain how violins made in the 1700s are better than violins made today, despite all the advances in technology and science and manufacturing between then and now. So the authors of the study point out that it takes an expert to determine if an old violin is an authentic piece or a replica, and they have to hold that violin, get up close to it, but they don't listen to it. They don't have it played or play it to determine if it's real. They can't use the sound coming out of it to determine whether it's one of these uh, revered, old, incredibly expensive, 
and I mean expensive, we're talking like, you know, four or five million dollars, sometimes more than that. I think there's a viola that's about to go on sale for $45 million. That's the starting bid. So these old instruments are very expensive and very beloved and very uh, sacred in that world. And, but if an expert wants to determine whether or not they're looking at a replica or a real version, they have to touch it and not listen to it. They have to look at it up close. And despite this, players, fans, experts, and others seem pretty confident that any master violinist could tell the difference right away once he or she played that instrument. And that's what they say in the study. So to test this, researchers, uh, they set up an experiment at an international violin competition in Indianapolis in 2010. And they set up two scenarios in which 21 different violinists, master violinists, would play uh, six different violins. Three were made recently. One of them was made just in the last few days before the study was conducted, and the rest were just a few years old. And the other three were very, very old, very, very rare, and very, very expensive actual Stradivarius and Guanari violins. And they had the violinist play in a hotel room that had dry acoustics so the room wouldn't mess with the sound. They had the violinist wear welder's goggles in low light conditions so they were basically uh, perfectly blindfolded so they couldn't actually see the violins. And then they even put uh, scent, like some perfume or something, on the violins so that they couldn't even smell the violins to smell that old wood. And to be super sure, they also made this a, a one of those strict double-blind studies. So the experimenters and the violinist, neither one of the, uh, the pe- none of the people within the study knew whether or not they were getting a new violin or an old violin whenever they would pick one up. Uh, and they were always assorted randomly each time they were given to the violinists. Now, these violinists were experts. Some had like 20 years of experience. Some had like 60 years of experience. And they all owned very expensive professional quality violins themselves. So they did two runs of the experiment. In one, they had all six instruments uh, laid out and the violinists could just uh, pick up one at a time and play all of them back and forth. And they were asked to just simply rate which one that they would be most likely to want to take home if they could take one home and which one would they be least likely to want to take home. And they just sort of set them loose in the room for 20 minutes and let them play the instruments. In the other run of the experiment, uh, they just handed them two violins at a time. Of course, they had to pick one. They didn't hold two at a time. But they they, uh, presented two violins that were chosen at random And the person had one minute to play one and then one minute to play the other. And they had right there in that moment, they had to say, which of the two did they prefer? Uh, And then sometimes they would unknowingly play the same pair multiple times because the experimenters would bring the same pair back around just to see if they were making a real distinction or just picking randomly. So after crunching all the numbers, the results showed that the professional violinists tended to pick the newest violins most often as their favorite. It's the one they would want to take home, rating those as the best. And they um, pick the old violins as the ones they liked the least. In fact, they chose the oldest one, the one that was the most expensive and the most uh, revered of all the violins, the Stradivarius. That's the one that was chosen uh, overall, when you crunch all the numbers, as being the worst of the bunch, the one that, that people wanted least. <laughs> and so uh, they... Uh, they actually uh, show that the oldest, the beloved, the most revered, the most sought after Stradivarius, the one that's worth millions of dollars is the one that people actually don't like. It's the one that's considered the worst. And the one that was made just a few days ago is better. Uh, So the preferences, even when you spread them out over a graph, um, the the newest ones were chosen most often. 
uh, and they were never chosen as the least favorite. And the Stradivarius was only chosen as the favorite once, but it was chosen as the worst of all 16 times out of 21. And another peculiar part of the experiment is that each violin, except the very newest one, was chosen as either the best or the worst at least once. So when people had to repeat those comparisons unknowingly, they tended to just sort of, uh, it was a coin toss, whether or not they would pick one or the other. So that shows that they really weren't very good at determining which one they liked the most. But once you gave them the opportunity to play all of them together and they had a lot of time to consider it, that's when you started to get those numbers come out. So uh, many people who've written about this have noted and the authors note that this is a small study. It had to be small, they said, because uh, it was very hard to get people to part with their Stradivarius violins. But this is the sort of research that I've seen many times and you can find lots of examples of this out there in the literature. Um, there's a research where people are given wine and they're, uh, it's white wine that's been colored red and um, sommeliers, people who be- are supposedly experts at uh, wine tasting um, will believe that they're drinking red wine. They will describe white wine as red. Uh, you can put people in MRI machines and uh, give them uh, wine and tell them that the wine is expensive or cheap. And the more expensive it is, you actually see in the brain scanner that they're enjoying the more expensive wine more. Um, this same thing has been repeated with cheese and beer and all sorts of stuff. The um, This sort of uh, expectation bias is what we're looking at here. When you expect something to be better, whether it's a cultural convention like it is with these violins, it's, you know, it's tradition uh, or it's uh, something that's just valued within the culture, uh, or you've been primed to believe that you're about to experience something better than crap, better than average, even better than good, then you will then proceed to expect and then experience that through the bias. And then there's a sort of another level, which is you are enjoying it despite whatever qualitative differences there are between this and something else. In other words, if you are... Uh, expecting it to be better and it's actually not better the the enjoyment that you're deriving from it is a real enjoyment uh no matter even though if you could back off and see it objectively it would actually be um the quality of what your experience is lesser than an alternative that you may have experienced before or may have experienced recently that doesn't change the fact that your enjoyment has been heightened the enjoyment itself is real and a little bit of this is the argument from antiquity um which has many variations. And that's just, we often believe human beings often believe that things that are older are better or things that are attached to some sort of long tradition are better than the new. This is really a problem when it comes to like cars. Um, people might think that a 1967 Stingray is a superior car to a, uh, Nissan Altima or a, a Toyota Camry, but really the, the, the new cars are better. They are better manufactured. We have learned a whole lot since then. And I think the same thing is probably true with these violins. Uh, The newer violins are simply uh, better than old violins. The old Stradivarius are not some sort of magical, no one can ever recreate that level of artistry um, instruments. No modern techniques and everything we've learned since then and modern materials and uh, uh, all the technology and experience that goes into making a new instrument makes a superior instrument. And at, at least this preliminary small study, the evidence uh, seems to point toward that assumption that uh, you give an expert an opportunity to play an old violin versus a new violin, and they will pick the new violin as long as they don't know they're picking it. And uh, 
they close out the study. I love this. I'm going to read right from it. Um, this is reading straight from the study. Notwithstanding all the above, the particular visual beauty and historical importance of old Italian violins will no doubt maintain their hold on the imagination of violinists and their audiences for a long time to come. This prospect comes through nicely in a comment by one of our subjects, an eventual competition laureate, who said, when asked the, ma- uh, when asked the making school of the new instrument he had just chosen to take home, he smiled and said, quote, I hope it's an old Italian. <laughs> so I love that. He... Uh, so probably suspected that maybe he would pick a new one, but he hoped he picked an old one because it would maintain that tradition. It would maintain that cultural value that these old violins are better, but probably objectively they're not. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also find merchandise like confirmation bias t-shirts, which we just got in a new supply of these things. Every time I get new ones made, they sell out within a day or two. So new ones were just made. I'm announcing it here first, then I'll announce it on the Facebook page. Uh the day after this comes out so that those of you listening to the podcast get a first shot at it. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Twitter at NotSmartBlog and uh, the music beds. All of these were by Drew Garraway and the intro music, the opening music, that is Clash by Caravan Palace. And don't forget, go to boingboing.net for more great podcasts.